take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war Hey guys, so on Monday's show, Nurse April and I interviewed a utilization and review nurse, um, whistleblower, essentially. We're protecting her identity, but we, you know, the conversation is just, was just flowing and, and we wanted to continue this topic with you guys. So April and I did a show on December 28th and um, Michelle, who we will call her, reached out to us and with this email. April and Jody, I just listened to your episode from today. You guys are awesome. I'm a new gardener, owner of four chickens, and also an RN, formerly critical care, then labor and delivery, but now I work for a major insurance company and utilization review from home. Like you all, I've been in total disbelief over the last few years at what I've been seeing from our colleagues. I knew from April, 2020, that something was seriously wrong. In my current job, which I've been in since 2015, I review medical records of inpatient admissions all day long. I was on maternity leave when COVID hit and went back to work early thinking surely they must need me. Instead, I came back and we had hardly anyone in the hospital. And we review for the entire state of California, a supposed hot zone. In the beginning, I was reviewing history and physicals of docs giving hydroxychloroquine for COVID. Then one day, I read a note that said pharmacy could no longer get it almost as if it were coordinated. A ripple effect ensued when I was reading notes from everywhere saying that they could no longer get hydroxychloroquine and things have only gotten worse and worse. I've read notes of doctors documenting, literally it was documented in their medical record that they bribed homeless people with food to get them to take the COVID vax. I've reviewed 38-year-old females with no previous medical history having heart attacks. I reviewed one last week of a woman who went into cardiac arrest at home. All four of her extremities were clotted in the ER. She ended up expiring in the ICU a few days later. The doctor seemed to have no desire to even consider the vaccine as a possible cause. Instead, they list etiology unknown. It's like they're hypnotized. Cloth mask? Social distancing? What? The last COVID death reviewed, I reviewed was in September 2021. However, this patient was septic from an infected dialysis line. So, of course, he was likely roped in to the fraudulent list of COVID deaths. 
I could go on and on. Thank you all so much for speaking out. I listen to your podcast and nod my head the whole time saying, yep, yep, yep. There are so many of us out here who agree. Stay fierce. Keep up the good work. And so on Monday, when April and I um, had her on the, on April's show, we we talked about some of these things. So I encourage you all to go back and listen to that because this is the second part of the conversation. But for those of you that didn't listen to that show, I'll give you a brief overview of what a utilization and review nurse is. So first of all, guys, I want to let you know that nursing has so many specialties, so many, and many nurses don't even know that there is something called utilization and review because these people are remote. They are able to access medical records remotely. So essentially, they have this 30,000 foot ceiling view, a bird's eye view, if you will, of a patient that comes into the ER and winds up getting admitted. Most times that nurse, you know, follows them from their admission from day one, all the way up until discharge. So essentially, like what they're doing is looking at the chart. So to give you an example, when a nurse or a doctor comes on shift, they are assigned a certain amount of patients and they receive report from those patients. And um, usually it's only, you know, what happened on the previous shift, essentially, with just an overview of what brought them in. Um, but it's like current labs, you know, where they're at in their in their illness, what needs to be done on that shift, that type of thing. So essentially, when a nurse and doctor comes on, it's, you know, obviously their duty to care for that patient for those 12 hours. Well, a utilization and review nurse, they are getting report like all the time, essentially, because they are looking at what brought that patient in, what was their diagnosis, and what's their vital signs, what's happening. Like they can see all of the chart notes, they see all of the progress notes from all of the patients. And essentially, their job is to make sure that they are medically, um, that they're, they're medically, um, being cared for, right? Appropriately, because these people work for insurance companies. So they want to make sure that a number one, you know, they're getting the care that they need and it's the proper um, chain of events that are occurring essentially. And so their, their view of that patient and their records are, it's just extraordinary. Um, like I said, you know, you know, when we were talking with her on our discovery call, you know, she's like, well, I'm not at bedside. And so I don't really see them physically. And I'm like, no, girl, like you have a very unique view of the patient because you are seeing everything about that patient. And so our guest, Michelle, she reviews for 17 hospitals in the state of California. 
and she sees about 30 patients a day. So that's well above the nurse that's caring for one or two or five patients, right? She's seeing charts of 30 patients a day. And she took us through um, the beginning of COVID and, and now we're on, um, you know, uh, continuing that conversation. So I have with me Nurse April, um, who is our Monday host on Nurses Out Loud. And like I said, guys, you are listening to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. And I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley. So welcome, ladies. Thank you for continuing this conversation, Michelle. I'm, I'm sure we could talk for, I mean, we already determined that we're like friends, like best yeah. friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love you guys. <laughs> yes, you're awesome. We love you too. Oh, um, we you. do. Um, oh. So we did end on on the last show talking about um, the pediatricians encouraging um, vaccination in children and just mind blown at how the FDA even approved this experimental shot. Like it's, it's, it, it asinine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really scary. I I kept throughout at least when it came to children, I kept thinking to myself like surely we'll protect our children. Surely they'll see that this is wrong. The data for children speaks for itself. It couldn't be more clear. And I have continued to be wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's really um it's a scary it's a scary thing, especially for me. I'm a I mean, my children are really young. So I, you know, it's been a scary thing to experience what they're trying to do to our kids. And my kids are, are so little, um, you know, it's, it's yeah. Crazy times. It absolutely is. And, you know, I, I think maybe we'll start off a little bit talking about the oath that we took and um, the ethical principles and the provisions that we are supposed to be following that was literally thrown out the hospital windows through COVID you know, as, as nurses and, and, and providers, we are supposed to protect our patient. So I agree with you. I mean, I literally, from the very beginning, you know, like you said, even in my, my book that is coming out, I talk about it being the twilight zone. Every single day I was in there, I was like, well, this isn't going to happen. We're not going to throw mask on ourselves. We're not going to remove the advocate from the bedside. Are you kidding me? We're, we're good. We have to give informed consent. We can't just say safe and effective. We have to let these people know that they're participating in an experiment and right. Yeah. I mean, we, at least, so from my end, you know, I'm a remote employee, but my company has a vaccine mandate, which includes remote employees. So when they, for us, if we were already there, they tried to, um, they were asking over and over for us to report our vaccine status. We had until this day, we had until this day. Um, and those of us that were current employees that are unvaccinated, like myself, um, have somehow gotten away with it. And they, we reported ourselves as unvaccinated and they didn't press it any further. At one point, I almost felt harassed because we were getting so many emails asking us to, you know, reinforce our vaccine status. Were we planning on getting vaccinated? Um, it was just over and over and over. Um, and any new employees. So if you're coming into my company as a new employee, even if you're a remote employee, you need to be vaccinated. And if you're not, you need to supply your vaccine card, uh, an exemption. 
it makes absolutely no sense mm. as a remote employee. I mean, when I had COVID, I worked. I had a, I had very mild. I was very mild. I worked. Who did I expose in my office? Zero, because my office is my home. But yet, as a remote employee, they're wanting these new employees to be vaccinated. It makes no sense. Nope. Yeah. I have a question, actually. So the insurance companies determine reimbursement based on evidence-based medicine, right? So when you're, you're reviewing these cases for utilization, you're looking to see that the care that's being provided is in line with guidelines, specific guidelines, but where do those guidelines come from? So they are national guidelines. Um, for us, we have internal medical policy and we also have, they're called Milliman care guidelines um, and they're kind of nationally established guidelines. I'm not, I'm not sure to be honest how they're mm -hmm. formulated, but it's um, kind of a national set of guidelines that, you know, if you have a patient that comes in for example, like COPD, there's a guideline for COPD where you'll click it open and it'll say clinical indications for admission. And it'll have kind of all of the things that you're looking for on a patient that should be admitted with COPD. And then once they're in the bed, when you're looking at it, like on a day by day basis to see how they're doing, there's kind of something called recovery milestones where you're looking like, you know, are they still on oxygen? Are they getting IV steroids still? Um, what's their PO intake like? So there's kind of these various milestones you have to meet in order to get to a position where you're ready for discharge. And that's kind mm -hmm. of what we follow um, to review cases for, for medical appropriateness. And so if they aren't meeting those guidelines, at some point, there's a point when you can say, we're not going to, well, not you, but the insurance company says, we're not going to reimburse for this particular, you know, admission because you didn't meet these standards. That's correct. Yeah. And, and it becomes a particular challenge in my population. Um, because again, I, I work with a lot of homeless. I work with a lot of, um, drug addicts. I work with a lot of substance abuse and if they need skilled nursing facility placement, they can often be very hard to place because the skilled nursing facilities don't want to take on the liability of, a drug addict who needs six weeks of IV antibiotics for endocarditis. Mm -hmm. So what can happen is they will end up sitting in the acute hospital bed for a while while we try to find them placement. And that has been, as you can imagine, a very hard challenge during COVID because the, I would say every skilled nursing facility um, wants you to be vaccinated. And it becomes a lot worse when you have a patient that's medically complex to begin with who is not vaccinated because now if they need a skilled nursing facility, they're just going to sit in the acute hospital bed where the hospital's losing money and they're medically appropriate to be discharged, but you know, you can't get them admitted anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. and that, so I I've been, that's where I've started to see, you know, more documented notes of trying to get patients to get the COVID vaccine so they can go to skilled nursing facilities. Because this is a big deal. So like, I want our listeners to know that once a patient is determined um, to not need that acute hospital bed, right? Um, because we don't keep people in the hospital that don't need to be there. We send them out to long-term care facilities or, or skilled nursing facilities. And, and typically we, we call them SNFs. This patient has been medically cleared to be discharged, not to home, but to a skilled nursing facility. 
and and their typical stays are like one or two weeks. And and all these skilled nursing facility guys are saying we will not accept that patient. So if they're not vaccinated, you had told us in our discovery call that they are um, saying like, no, they have to be vaccinated and they will accept a patient that got the shot and they'll take them like that day or the next day. So, yeah, so we were talking about, you know, what what is it, you know, um, to be considered fully vaccinated? Like, again, that keeps changing. Yeah, I can't keep track. Frankly, at this point, like I can't even tell you what fully vaccinated means. I, I mean, I think it depends where you live and like what you do. I don't even know because it changes every like seemingly every five minutes. But um, yeah, I can only speculate on the motives for why they're pushing these vaccines. But it doesn't I'm in, inferring it doesn't look like it's being done out of concern that, wow, this patient's high risk and we therefore think they need the vaccine for their protection, which again, I don't agree with, but um, I think is wrong. But at least that's something. To me, it seems more like these vaccines are being heavily in, like pushed on these patients because they need to be placed in a skilled nursing facility, not because, you know, for the welfare of the patient, they should be protected against COVID, which we all know is bogus. But right. um but yeah, that's what it looks like to me from from an outside looking in perspective, because, um, you know, I, I just I'll never forget. I had one patient in particular that was refusing the vaccine over and over and over, but they needed skilled nursing facility placement. And this was a patient where they said, unfortunately, we can't vaccinate him against his will. That was written in a note. And then they also said that the patient was refusing the vaccine and finally acquiesced with a small bribe of food. And then the patient was able to go to a skilled nursing facility. Now, a lot of these skilled nursing facilities in its own insanity will accept a patient that has only had one shot the day before, which doesn't make sense because you're saying you won't admit a patient unless they're vaccinated. But by that own definition of one shot the day before is not vaccinated. Well, exactly. I mean, it it, doesn't make sense. It makes zero sense. And if we like literally look at this, like critically thinking at first, right. um, The the, the propaganda slogan that came out in 2020, 2021 was get vaccinated, protect yourself, protect others. Um, If you get vaccinated, you can be around your family for the holidays. Um, but then we, you know, and, and those of us paying attention already knew that the clinical trials didn't test for infection or uh, transmission. And then they pushed it, you know, once the Pfizer documents that they wanted to be covered up for 75 years, that was released. Then they changed it and said, well, we're, we just want you to be vaccinated so you don't go to the hospital and die. And so for for that sniff patient that needs to go out that's saying i don't want to take the vaccine i'm not going to take it and for the listeners out there you do not have to take it i don't care how much coercion i don't care how many times that nurse comes into your room asking you or that doctor is standing at the foot of your bed telling you all the the benefits and and all of that cuz they don't tell you the risk They'll tell you what they think are the benefits and you don't have to take it. And when you don't take it, they, that hospital has to keep you there. 
right? They cannot medically discharge you because it's not considered a safe discharge. And so their, their payout on that patient uh, or on you that says, I'm not going to a sniff, bring a PTOT to me to my bedside here. That hospital has to do it, but they're making less money reimbursement from the insurance company. And yeah, so that's and, very- and just to explain a little bit of how that works, what happens is hospitals get a global fee. So if you have a you know an ICD-10 code, which is your diagnosis code, and they have all of their CPT codes, which are basically codes to say we did all of these things that have price tags attached to them, ultimately they're getting a global, say they're going to get a $20,000 for this stay. As a business, they're looking at, okay, if I can get this patient out instead of the standard seven days that it would normally take, if I get them out in three days, then I will make a profit. So regardless of what happens to this patient, you're only going to get $20,000. So if that patient doesn't leave, now you're losing money on that patient. And that's where the bullying and, you know, them pushing these things like get the vaccine because that's the only reason why you're still here that's where that comes in. And it becomes a a huge conflict of interest. Yeah, I will say for for my um, company, so at at least where I am in terms of within the company, our contracts, we kind of have primarily kind of two different contracts. One is the one that you're describing where the hospital will get a set rate for the duration for the stay, no matter if they're there for two days, or they're there for, you know, 20 days, Mm -hmm. Um, they'll just get the one one bulk rate. Then there's on the other side, a per diem where you get a daily, you get a daily kind of rate on what's going on with the patient. So if you're on a per diem contract and the patient is medically appropriate to discharge, um, you're not getting paid anymore for all of those days thereafter. So I've had instances of patients that have been sitting in an acute bed for over 30 days waiting for a placement. And um, that's, time that the hospital is, you know, basically having a subacute level patient in an acute bed and just losing money every just single day. Eating that cost. Wow. Right. That's right. right. I've had it to where I've had patients there for over a year, guys. So yeah. people don't mm. realize that and you they don't realize what their power is. You know, my friend who's um, uh, a hospital supervisor, a nurse, and, and, you know, just a little bit of backstory, guys, nurses run the hospital. We mm-hmm. run it. I mean, you, you yeah, you, we do on utilization and review. We run it as charge nurses and the CNO runs that hospital. And so does the hospital supervisor, who's always a nurse. So um, anyway, I kind of got off. Of- but let me just say that just to just to um, defend nurses in that, although we run it as far as operations go, when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to making those business decisions, it's not, it's over our head. Like we can't say this doesn't make sense. You know, let's not do this or let's, you know, reallocate funds in this way or that way. That's, that's the, that's over there in the business side of things where people who don't have direct patient care experience are making determinations from a financial standpoint. And that's where I think it really screws up the system because like you're saying, um, if you have a patient who needs to be discharged, but can't be discharged, you know, those are rules and standards that have been put in place by our government, you know, to protect patients, of course, but at the same time, when you're trying to operate a business and you can't discharge a patient and yet the insurance companies can turn around and say, yeah, well, we're not going to pay for that. Like, it doesn't, it, it, you know, it, it really destroys. Cause so then the hospital has to find ways 
to pay for that. So they're going to start cutting in other areas. And that's why you start seeing they're cutting costs on staffing. They're, you know, decreasing, you know, uh, people's wages. They're making one nurse do the job of three nurses, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it is the top down um, approach, right? Because you have these these hospital administrators that are making the big bucks mm-hmm. and then it, it goes down to, you know, the, the CNO and then the CNO goes out and tells all of the, the, um, the managers, the nurse managers on the floor, what they have to do. Then it gets trickled down to the charge nurses and then it gets trickled down to the, the supervised, uh, supervisor nurses. And then you get to the bedside nurses, but guys here, here's the thing. It's like, Here's th- three things that we do know. We are in World War III. We will never be the same. And we were all called for such a time as this. So I want to let you all know, like, there is no judgment, no judgment here. We as nurses need to be unified in our profession and show grace to one another because we have all suffered a tremendous amount of moral injury over the last three years and counting. And Michelle reaching out, I had to watch my, um, the name (laughs) because we're protecting our identity, but, you know, Michelle reaching out and, and, you know, talking to us, like, this is what we encourage you all to do. Please go to americaoutloud.com forward slash nurses out loud, or you can go into the shows and see all of the list of our amazing shows that we have and um and click on there and then there will be a drop down of what nurse that you want to reach out to and and send us a, an email and and we will um we will share your story and we will uh, protect your identity because i think the more people that come forward the more people that uh, are awakened and um it's our job to to sh- you know share the truth and to speak our truth and not be silenced so when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about um, the flu, RSV, um, and COVID um, that we're seeing in the hospitals. Because you know, as Michelle had said, you know, it's a lot worse than what she's seen um, over the last three years. This year is the worst. So we'll be right back. It's time and. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, 
It's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. All right. Welcome back, ladies. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I like we said earlier, there's so much we could talk about. I mean, literally, we can probably do a show for six months. Right. Um, yeah. Talking about it. But, you know, um, everybody, I, what I find interesting that's happening now is we, everybody's getting sick, right? And because it's not the 24-7, you know, death toll ticker that is um, being spread, we're, we're handling it like we should have handled it in 2020, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we have RSV, flu and COVID back again. My question is, is where did it go and why is it back again? Yeah, it's it's crazy. I remember I think it was Dr. Burks who said like, oh, the flu's gone. Uh was it last year or the year before? Like, oh, the flu, like poof, it vanished. Like I have seen an absolute explosion in flu cases. Um, I mean, that's why I said earlier in, in April show, I would compare it actually like this was, this, this has been worse than what I saw on my end during COVID in terms of hospital admissions, because the flu has just absolutely exploded this year. Um, another one that's absolutely exploded from my end is is RSV admissions. And the majority of them that I've noticed are in babies under a year old. And they're coming in very sick, um, very, very sick. And I know, you know, my daughter, when she was two, had RSV and had to be hospitalized for two days. So I know that this is something that happens every year. It's a cyclical thing with RSV in kids, but I have seen a market, markedly increased admission rate of infants with RSV more than I've seen before, all under a year old. Um, and the question that I had, you know, that I've kind of been wondering to myself is, you know, I've looked in the charts and there's no, there's no mention of mom's vac status, but these babies were all in utero and or born during the vaccine rollout. So what I want to know is, are these babies, babies of mothers that have been vaccinated? Um, and if so, like, that's a big deal. Absolutely. I mean, I hadn't even thought of that until you brought it up when we were talking and I'm like, wow, okay, who's following that? And and to me, again, whoever is orchestrating this entire thing that we're going through, they know, they are seeing all, I know that they have, they're pulling in all this information and they're tracking it all. What we have to be able to do is get access to the to the full picture so that we can start to put the clues together to figure out, like, ultimately, I, I'm looking at this like an investigation. And right. so we need to figure out who's 
who is causing this and what, what do we need to be aware of? What do we need to start focusing on so that we can try to find a solution to, to help people who have these injuries from these vaccines, especially right. if it's, it's hurting the next generation. Right. And, and I've noticed too, um, that they're actually now, I don't know why, but I I'm seeing ERs every, for all the places that I review for, um, testing adults for RSV, which, I mean, I haven't ever seen before, um, Never. testing them for RSV in the ER. So I'm not sure why that's occurring either, which I, I would love to know the answer to. Yeah. See. Yeah. It makes no sense. Like, you know, we, we didn't test for flu during COVID and, you know, they, they were able to, you know, publicize, oh, the flu is gone. Oh, the <laughs> flu must be gone because we were wearing masks. Now we don't have masks on and now it's back again. But yet for the vast majority of the people, we're all living our life just as normal. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. We're not, and we're not talking about we're not talking, you know, we're, we're saying, oh, yeah, I'm sick, you know, like, yeah, it's normal. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's something that we should have done for the last two years. Like me, myself, I've never tested. I've never done a PCR test because me neither. Yeah. Like, <laughs> why? Why do I need to know that? You know, like, I know I'm, I'm going to treat it out my, my symptoms. And now with having, you know, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine on hand, if I feel like it's going into my chest or something and it's not really getting better, I'll, you know, I'll pop my, um, my ivermectin. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I listened to Dr. McCullough from the start and I had his protocol like ready to go if we, if I needed it mm -hmm. and I've never tested for COVID. Um, and my son has been tested one time, which I was not happy about, but the rest of my kids have never taken a COVID test either. The only reason I know that we had COVID is because my husband works in law enforcement and because he was unvaccinated again, insanity, but he was having to test every single week. Um, because he was not vaccinated. Whereas the officers that were vaccinated did not have to test, even if they got COVID, you know, so they could still just as easily get COVID, but they didn't have to test every week. Um, and of course, you know, I had a mild cold and wasn't feeling well. And my husband was kind of stuffed up too and had to take a COVID test and voila, it was positive. Um, wow. But that's the only reason we knew. And then, you know, he was coming off of his, his work shift. So he had the next like three or four days off. And they were like, so short staffed with officers that they said, okay, well you can just come back, you know, on your next day, on your next regular scheduled day. Like we didn't, he didn't have to quarantine mm -hmm. like our children did for two weeks at a time. I mean, just utter madness. It's like picking and choosing, like nobody's on the same page. And you know what's funny. And I was and talking to my friend who's, um, hospital supervisor. And she was saying how many call offs they're getting because they're, they're still not penalizing, um, nurses for calling off, um, with COVID and they don't require a test or anything to be shown because, you know, at this point she said to me, she's like, everybody's got a test that they can like, you know, text to us. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter, but, um, th like they're trying to incentivize nurses to come to the hospital because they are overwhelmed now. They have yeah. been overwhelmed worse than the last three years of COVID. And, you know, nurses are getting burnt out and, you know, they're trying to offer um, incentive and bonus pay. And she said that they offer $350 additional for a night nurse and $150 for a day nurse. 
So these nurses are making, she said, um, $36 more an hour working night shift with the bonus pay than um, the day shift nurse. And so now day shift nurses are like, screw that. They're <laughs> starting to call off, you know, and right. they're picketing essentially because they're like, give us the same bonus pay or else mm -hmm. we're not going to come in because you know, a day shift nurse does way more work than a night shift nurse does. And I know yeah. I've done both. Me too. <laughs> yeah. And, and I will yep. say I, I used to be a traveler and I still get emails from my travel company being like, come out and travel with us. And some of the rates that I have been seeing are so enormous. Mm -hmm. I mean, but at the same token, you got to be vaccinated. And that's another problem that they're facing is all these hospitals that are mandating this vaccine. You have nurses there that are like, I'm not doing it. This is a hill I'll die on and buy now and they quit. So yeah. it's like, you know, that's another major problem of these nursing shortages we're seeing is that these mandates, they have serious consequences. Yeah. In a uh, lot know, of different ways. Well, I, cause I've been getting the same, I think we're all getting those notifications for these travel companies and I've been in contact with some of them and they'll send you the information about the assignment. And then, you know, cause, because I'm not vaccinated, they'll say uh, they're only sending me the ones where the hospitals are willing to accept me. And some of the requirements for like getting the, the religious exemption, uh, I mean, I, I, I was so, I was so offended. I went off because they were like, oh, you're going to have to get it signed by your clergy, you know, acknowledging that this is, and I'm like, who, who are you to tell me whether or not my beliefs, sincerely held beliefs are legitimate or not? Like, I don't need to go to anybody in, you know, you know, in the ministry who's above me, you know, quote unquote, to validate my belief that this is not right for me. Um, yeah. which of course they were quickly like, no, 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 just ignore that. You don't have to do that. Please just, you know, fill out the information and take this position. I'm like, no, 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 no. Now I'm mad. This system, yeah. <laughs> this system is corrupt, but know. you know, I want to go back to something you guys were talking about, you know, with the testing, here's the thing that's crazy. If you got tested and you tested positive for COVID and you were admitted, they weren't giving the patients antibiotics if they ended up getting like bacterial pneumonia. And that's how a lot of these elderly people died because they weren't treating them as they would have. What was the standard of care before was that if you got pneumonia, they would treat you with antibiotics. And really, I think that's actually how they were able to kill so many people. Um, and it was, so it's better. Had we not had the testing, doctors would have used their, their intuition, you know, what they had learned. Okay. This person is presenting with pneumonia. We're going to treat them with antibiotics. And that's why those protocols work so well. Dr. McCullough's protocol or um, the FLCCC protocol, because they added that antibiotic treatment into the protocol as if things progressed, treat with this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, doctors, at least in my experience, I mean, you have a, a high heart rate and a fever in the ER, we're putting you on antibiotics. Like everybody would go on antibiotics because it was a better safe than sorry until we know that you're not septic mm -hmm. or have some sort of, you know, other infection going on. Um, yeah, so that that's that's been a little um, shocking as well. But I, I will say at least now um, I'm seeing antibiotics given with COVID still still lots of remdesivir. Um, that's the primary drug of choice is remdesivir. Mm -hmm. And then uh, ibudexamethasone. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of Pax, Paxlovid. Mm -hmm. Um, haven't seen much of that, but yeah, remdesivir is still 
still strong in the game when it comes to inpatient treatment of COVID, unfortunately. Here's the thing, though, April, to answer that question, because I was that nurse that was like, okay, listen, I would take it, you know, come on and, and take a patient and be like, okay, so we're sedating them you know, on the, um, alcohol withdrawal protocol, they've been here for like four days. They're not getting up out of bed. Um, why are we not giving them an antibiotic? And they're like, because they have COVID. And I said, yes, but don't you think like a secondary bacterial infection would, would, um, you know, occur from them laying here? Well, it's not what we do with COVID. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, I'm getting a sputum sample. And they're like, you know, well, are they coughing something up? And I would go into the patient's room with my specimen cup and pull off their mask and be like, cough in here, cough in here, (laughs) you know? And I had like six patients come back that had pseudomonas, like all of these bacterial infections. And then several of them got intubated and died. And I was like, this is complete malpractice. Like, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, that's another thing that, you know, is on my whistleblower is because we did not care for the patient with people that were COVID positive were put in isolation. They were quarantined. Nurses and doctors did not go in the room Mm -hmm. and they didn't have to go in the room because they would chart due to lessen COVID exposure, you know, reports received from nurse. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and it's just like, it's horrific. It, it's horrific. You know? Yeah. And I'll, I'll say at least from, from my experience, cause again, obviously I'm not at the bedside, but, um, I see a lot of telehealth visits in the hospital. So a lot of like, where they're just giving the patient, like I'm assuming an iPad or something, and they're doing a telemedicine visit because the patient has COVID. Um, but you got to put your, you got to put your hands on a patient. You, you got to see the patient in the flesh. You got to assess your patient. And I don't know how you can get that accurately if you're doing it through a computer. Well, you're not. I remember a cardiologist, right. a, a cardiologist was, um, consulted and they came in and, um, they looked at the patient through the window and that cardiologist turned around and was like, are you kidding me? This person has congestive heart failure. I can see their jugular vein distension from the freaking door. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just crazy. And wow. that's the thing. It's like, they were not looking. I mean, it, it, oh my God, it's such a web of deceit and evil. Yeah, it yep. really is. It's almost like overwhelming on trying to narrow it down because it all goes in so many different directions of hell that like, <laughs> How do you narrow down like how to like condense it all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it it makes me wonder, you know, about training and education. And that's always like a huge focus for me because when I've been trying to figure out for the last several years is what is the actual problem so we can actually find a solution. And I've usually find that it's a lack of knowledge, training and education, you know, so most people don't have the intent to hurt or to harm, but they just don't know. And so if we can increase the training and education, then maybe patients would be safer. So what you're telling me is like, okay, maybe these newer practitioners don't know how to properly evaluate. We're so, we rely so heavily on lab results and imaging that we don't know how to 
look at a patient, touch a patient and really pro- uh, perform a proper assessment. We just don't, we have lost that skill with, with the older doctors leaving and the older nurses leaving who know it, they're not there to pass it on to us. And so if you don't understand the, it's one thing to memorize, you know, rote memory, like for a test, it's another thing to really understand the pathophysiology that you're looking at, because when things fall outside of the norm, you still understand the method of action. So you can, you can make the necessary connections, but we were lacking that. Well, I yeah. think we're lacking that. Uh, we, we talked about uh, new grad nurses, Michelle, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So to touch base on that for people, a lot of these new grad nurses were put on the COVID unit and the COVID unit, you know, essentially was like a lockdown unit. Nobody in the hospital wanted to go to that unit. And so you had all these baby nurses that were newly out of um, nursing school. And because COVID typically was not a complicated disease to, um, to treat because we weren't treating it, right? We weren't treating it. So um, remdesivir is hung once a day. Labs maybe, or labs were drawn once a day. They weren't giving antibiotics. They weren't giving steroids. They weren't giving nebulizing treatments. Like, so the, the new grad nurse, you only know what you know. And when you mm-hmm. have a lot of, you know, critical thinking nurses and experienced nurses, like the three of us, who are like, we can't participate in this anymore. We have to mm-hmm. leave and we don't want to leave them. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I guess, you know, this would be a good way to end the show, you know, because I know so many people, they don't know what, you know, they, they're like, you know, they're torn, they're nurses, we're nurses, we're caring. And, and how do we, how do we handle like, you know, complying with our ethics and still, helping these people, because if we were all to, uh, all to leave guys, I mean, you're talking a socialist healthcare system that would just take over overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I will say like what April was saying about training, um, you know, I completely agree. It's the old school nurses and doctors that are the gems. Um, and the way that they're now teaching though, is so heavily reliant on you know, automatic blood pressure cuffs instead of doing manual. When I did L and D, it was relying on your, your fetal scalp electrode to do the heart rate and, mm-hmm. you know, relying on your, um, what's called an IUPC, which you insert inside the mom to, to monitor contractions rather than putting your hands on the mom's belly and feeling her contractions. Mm-hmm. Everything has become very reliant on machinery and the old school nurses and doctors, they can look at a patient and know what's going on. Mm-hmm. They've kind of developed that instinct over time. But now we're in a situation where we have nurses, new nurses and new doctors that are being, um, A, heavily reliant on their machinery rather than putting hands and eyes on the patient. But also they're, the things that they're being told are being heavily like politicized. Um, the things that they're being taught are, are frankly like a little scary. Like I'm hearing some things coming out of med schools um, that are very kind of just not appropriate in my opinion. Um, but these are the new, the new generation of doctors coming up. And so that's kind of another scary thing we have to deal with is, uh, we just have a system that's now teaching doctors and nurses, you know, things that are not necessarily medic medically appropriate and they're more politically aligned, which I think is going to be a scary thing for us to deal with in the future. 
For sure. I I came across this article years ago that talked about how nursing and they did a study and they found that nursing intuition where a nurse could actually tell that a patient was on the decline before their labs showed it, before their vitals showed it, a nurse's intuition could pick up on the clues and say, this patient is about to decompensate. And they did a study and they actually found it to be reliable that, you know, even if, you know, all of the objective signs that you're looking at seem to point that a patient is stable, you need to trust the nurse's intuition. And so for years, I've been trying to understand why. And I recently think I figured it out. So one of the things that happens over time with exposure over and over and over to patients in the hospital who are sick, or just in general, when you're taking care of someone, is that you pick up on signs you, your senses smell things that you may not even know that you smell because it's so subtle and our brain is constantly working and it's computing things so fast, so much faster than we actually can process and put words to. So we don't even recognize it, but we get this gut feeling because our brain connected to our gut is telling us something is different or something that we need to you know pay attention to, even though our brain hasn't brought the words around to make, you know, to, to express it. And so we see a patient, we walk into a room and maybe we smell something that reminds us of several patients we've had in the past who, when we smelled that they were, you know, close to, you know, having maybe an infection or sepsis or something, or we may look at a person and we've been looking at them, you know, over days and we see that there's a slight change. We, we don't necessarily see it you know, and know it, but our brain recognizes a slight change in the coloration or a slight change in maybe, you know, the turgor, the skin turgor, or how hydrated they are. Something is different. And so we can't necessarily put words to it, but we know something's different. That comes from time and experience and exposure and having seen patients, you know, decline and then knowing, okay, these, these things happened around this time. And so um, when, you know, I start me, I started making these bodies, um, to try to help with training and education. And when I was learning how to paint the skin, I was having a hard time. Cause I'm not an artist. So I'm just like trying to figure this out. And I was trying to make, um, skin that looked natural. And so finally, what I did was I started to think about, okay, what are the layers of tissue leading up to the skin level, the surface? And I was like, okay, we have the fat layer and then we have, you know, we have our fascial layer, which is white in color. And then we have veins, which are show, you know, show up in these colors. And it hit me like our brain is processing changes in oxygenation status, for instance, because their skin looks slightly different. But what we're doing is we're seeing that there's less oxygen beneath the surface layers. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we can trust our intuition because we are able to process all of these very complex things very, very quickly. When you have new nurses and new doctors at the bedside who have not had that experience that only comes from time, you're going to have patients who are going to have, um, less, a less quality of care because they just haven't had the time yet. Right. And that's also why continuity of care is so important. Right. As you have patients with prolonged hospital stays. And if you're rotating your nursing staff and no, like, you know, the nurse doesn't have that patient every time she's in on shift Mm -hmm. and you have a new nurse every time, then that create, that's going to create some trouble. And why you need patient family members to be at the bedside 
helping yeah. because they're going to recognize changes in their loved ones that you aren't going to recognize because you're not always with them. You don't know what their normal status is. So, I mean, we were pushing families away. We were banning families from being able to visit their family members, but we needed them. Right, exactly. And, and especially really- making... I mean, you're creating such a more intense stress response for patients that say have dementia um, or, mm-hmm. or other cognitive problems when you're denying them their caregiver or family member in the room and you're leaving them alone. So now not only yeah. are they sick, but they're so profoundly stressed out that you're actually making their illness worse. Yeah, um, right. Like stress, and- the stress uh, response, like that kills people, you know? Exactly. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had one of my neighbors who, um, is very, got very, very ill with COVID and, um, has some kind of memory cognitive issues. And his wife was completely frantic, upset because they wouldn't let her to the bedside. And he was calling on the phone, crying to her, um, saying, because he was alone and she was hysterical and called me on the phone saying, you know, I feel like I'm watching him die. Nobody will help me. Um, and she wasn't. And then finally, after begging and begging and begging, they let one family member go and stay with him. But she was not allowed to leave the room. She had to stay with him in in his room the entire time because he was on COVID isolation. So once she went in there, she was no longer allowed to leave. So she stayed with him at his bedside the whole time, which was great because he needed the support. But there's but a lot horrific. of people, like they it's horrific. It's medically kidnapping people. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's absolutely horrific, horrific. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember like, you know, a family member insisting on wanting to come in and the nurse that was, you know, nurses that would, you know, b- you know, be able to critically think like, hey, I put on my PPE and then I take it off and I go to Walmart and go shopping. Like, mm-hmm. why can I not have the, the family member at the bedside. And so if a patient, you know, a family member was insisting, like in my head, I'm like, oh, please insist, please insist. Right. <laughs> right. I, will, mm-hmm. I will pull you into this room and I will let you come in there and I will make that determination as hospital supervisor and let anybody come at me and, and ask me why I did that, you know? Right. And it was, it was not only, it was inhumane and cruel and just, Yeah, it was very, very unfortunate and sad because a lot of patients died alone. Yes. And one of the things, my brother-in-law had a vaccine injury and he was in the ICU and they had him on chemical restraints and they had him restrained to the bed as well. He was on a ventilator and all the things. And because I know policy and procedure, I was like, look, we need to have, you need to let his wife be in the hospital at the bedside with him because that's the least Um, if you're concerned about his safety and you're concerned about him being agitated, instead of tying him down, give her a chance to be at the bedside with him. And if I didn't know that that was an option, then they would have continued to restrict visitors. Mm -hmm. But knowing that, you know, we're supposed to, you know, reevaluate people in restraints and we're supposed to give them the least restrictive um, environment. And that means if that means having a sitter at the bedside or someone that is close to them that can keep them calm, that's what we have to do first before we resort to using chemical restraints or physical restraints. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we only have a couple more minutes here, guys. So I, I want to let people know that Nurse April um, has been creating a, a worksheet and, and her and I talked about it last night and we are going to con, um, do a video series and possibly Zoom classes to teach you guys what the process is in the hospital and um, and what's going on with it. Um, we're and how you can steer your own treatment. And it looks like mm -hmm. we're bringing Michelle in, although this is the first time you heard about it, Michelle. But <laughs> right. Awesome. We already assigned you. Awesome. Already assigned I'm all in. You. I'm all in. So Michelle, uh, you have um, one minute. Tell, you know, close this out here. Um, all I can say is to all of, the nurses out there, if you see something, say something, um, keep your eyes open and don't just blindly trust things because we're living in a time where you can't and you need to do your research and keep up the good fight. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, guys, I, I hope this uh, show speaks to you uh, and encourages you to reach out like I said, we literally can easily talk for, you know, many more hours on this subject. So if there's something that you want to hear us speak about, send a message to, um, you know, our show nurses out loud, America out loud.com uh, forward slash nurses out loud. You can look at a um, pull down April, uh, April's name or my name. And, um, and let us know, let us know your thoughts, let us know how this show, you know, if it touched you or what you want to hear more, um, because that's all the time we have for today, friends. But remember, we're here on the air five days a week, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern with a different nurse host daily. Be sure to tune in and listen to myself and my amazing sister nurses as we walk you through all of these hot topics. We want to empower you with the information and education. We will advocate and we will stand in the gap for you because we're nurses and this is what we do. I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley, and you can find me here every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the podcasts, and the videos so we can help secure America's future. Until next time, be safe, be well, God bless, Happy New Year. This is Nurses Out Loud. We are in a war for the truth. We're putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. Join us weekdays with a different nurse host daily. No topic is off limits as we shine our lights and expose the darkness. It's time and day.